Startup Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Callahan. Today, I am joined by Kabir Shukla, who is a product executive based in Los Angeles, California. Kabir, how are we doing today? I'm good. I'm hanging in there. I'm excited. I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to talk here today. I know it's been it's been quite some time and I'm really interested to hear kind of what you've been up to the past several years and you know get to the audience to know a little more about your background but kind of starting from the beginning uh you know you got your bachelor's in healthcare management and policy uh, from Georgetown and kind of like what was your interest there and do you still utilize any of that in your you know product experience over the past you know 10 plus years Yeah absolutely so I'm I'm actually from a family of physicians uh, and always wanted to stay on the business side. I had aspirations of going into finance, focusing in the healthcare sector and a, um, a three month internship on Wall Street dashed that desire uh, pretty quickly. So, um, you know, I moved, I, I figured healthcare management and, and the business side of healthcare was great. Um, and you know, what's interesting, you said, how do I use it today? I, I'm, I think what I learned, what was great was the amount of like red tape in, in building healthcare technology and just healthcare in general, uh, has started to like permeate industries. We, we go into clean tech, you think about FinTech and, and now as legislation catches up to technology or, or drives some of the technology decisions, having the ability to understand how to work within some of those constraints or work with the legal team or listen to the legal team, uh, you know, those kinds of things has been really helpful, uh, especially now as health tech starts to, to come to the services uh, paving the way for, for the next generation of, of, you know, new technology. Right on. Yeah, no, I think it, you know, it's kind of that blend of having that knowledge and taking it into a kind of a different, I guess, title, uh, that, that might be typical. And, and then after that, you know, you got your master's, uh, at USC in digital media and online communities, like, and so I imagine that program was fairly new, uh, you know, at the time you got it, just kind of new, new technology really, but how, and so much has changed since then. Like, how have you adapted since getting that that master's degree? Yeah, it's funny you bring it up, and it's almost like I have to you know go to the archives of my memory. Um, <laughs> actually, it's it was it was when I moved to LA. It was shortly after I moved to LA. I moved here, and I worked for a prominent uh, film and TV producer. So it's almost two careers ago. <laughs> but um, when I was doing that, I started a social network for entertainment industry assistants, like a LinkedIn slash Facebook. To, to change the way they communicated. And uh, I fell in love with sort of digital entrepreneurship, you know, doing, wearing the hats of a product manager, working with a designer, uh, trying to get funding, uh, hearing no when you're trying to get funding uh, and and realize, hey, there's, there's a better career out there for me. And I found the USC program in digital communities. Um, and you mentioned, you know, hey, this was probably a pretty nascent degree, which it was, it was the fourth year of the program. Um, and so it was really about the, the business of healthcare. Uh, sorry, the business of, of social networking, online communities. And what's so funny is it was moving so fast that what we had learned by the beginning of the program was irrelevant by the end of it. You know, we were we were learning things like, hey, Facebook just launched a mobile app. How are they going to monetize? You know, and <laughs> it's funny not to think like you know questions like that really existed in the classroom. Um, but uh, you know what it what it taught me, and I think where where how much has changed? Well, how have I adapted? I think what I really learned then, like when I started, I was a mobile product manager and that was a job title that newly existed. And now that title doesn't exist because everything you do in product has a mobile component. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was really about mobile transformation then going desktop to mobile. Uh, and that shift 
starting with the classroom, going into practice, I think was a great, great foundation for me to then uh, build a, a more traditional product career. Cool. Yeah, and it, it sounds like, you know, from that, you know, I know you mentioned a little bit of kind of creating your own products uh, with like, like LinkedIn for people, uh, some similar to that. And, you know, what was kind of like your first venture into startups or running companies? I know you've kind of had a few that you ran early on in your career. Um, can you kind of break down what the, the mindset was behind those and kind of the experience you learned from just, you know, getting out and, and doing something and building something? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at my career from the beginning to the end, it's going to be one of those choose your own adventure books where chapter two has nothing to do with chapter three. Uh, so so coming out of college, again, we talked, you know, healthcare management, uh, any natural progression, I started a dog walking company uh, <laughs> after working in healthcare administration and stuff uh, back in Long Island, where I'm from. And I took screenwriting classes at NYU to to save up and come here. So that was, you know, it's like, hey, I want to work for myself. Uh, low barrier to entry, but it really is one of those, if I knew then what I know now, like I didn't have pet insurance, you know, any of that stuff mm. that you probably should do if you're caring for other people's animals. But uh, yeah, so I moved from there to LA and then that's when uh, created We Left Word, that is uh, uh, the assistant social network kind of thing. And then at the Capstone Project for for USC, uh, created a another startup with two classmates, which at the time was called uh, Where My Dog Sat, and uh, we we were so excited about it. It was it was a mobile first social network for dog owners, and the principle was we had integrated Foursquare API and a Yelp API. So this sort of tells you how long ago uh, yeah. this was, <laughs> right? Foursquare API is probably defunct now, but. Um, and so what we did was we thought, hey, here's a, here's a problem that we want to solve. When people go to other areas with their dogs, let's say you're in L.A. and you want to go to San Francisco, you want to know, is this hotel dog friendly or how dog friendly is it? So we, we built the review rating system to allow users to uh, review and rate different areas on dog friendliness. Um, and then with the checking component, we really wanted people to be able to check into dog parks with their, uh, with their dogs. So let's say I have a small dog and you have a big dog and you're checked in. Before I go to the park, I can see, hey, what kind of dogs are there? Maybe I don't want to go. So we had this beautiful epiphany. Where are my dogs at? What a great name, all this stuff. Uh, and we got into, uh, at the time, uh, Start Engine, which at the time was an incubator. Yeah. Uh, they, they pivoted it out. Um, and, oh, we added this one additional feature that you can uh, post photos of you and your dogs or just your dogs in, in a in a, a scroll type format you know like that that other feature so we launch it what do we what do we learn nobody cares about checking in nobody cares about dark <laughs> all they want to do is post dog photos so we we ended up creating inadvertently pivoted into a doggy instagram um and changed the name to Dogland. so i think that was really where this first foray into hey a pivot well, what is a pivot other than in basketball right now you know like yeah. you really need to make from what the market tells you, concerted decisions. And so uh, very long-winded lead to answer your question. I think it, it, it it's funny. It, went, it came full circle, right? I started with dogs, ending with dogs. But uh, really just coming together and shaping a little bit of how you look at a product and then how you build and maybe even change it up. Yeah, and it's like you can't – you can think users are going to behave one way and use the app the way it's meant to be intended, and then they just totally don't. And I know I was – you know, I wish I had that app this morning because I took my dog to the dog park at 730, and there was no other dogs there. I'm like, well, now we're just hanging out. 
uh, and it's like, oh, like I'll just take a picture of my dog, I guess, and, and post it. Um, yeah, so li- literally, where are my dogs at at that point? Yeah, yeah, there's no other dogs here, so um, right. But no, and, and, and you know, like with that, you know, did you sort of like what is like your core philosophy been with you know creating products and like building and launching successful products and then. You know, you've mentioned so much has evolved over over time, just like you've learned so much by doing. Um, how has that changed in the in the past, you know, in your, over your career? Yeah, you know, when I when I first started with product, um, you can use where my dogs at or anything really. You know, I had this similar philosophy that most product managers or most people in building a startup have. You know, hey, there's a there's a problem in the market and my product solves it. What is a problem? How can we build a solution? And and over time, I've actually shifted my point of view a little bit uh, to more. What is what is the the consumer looking to achieve by using our product? What is the value they're looking to derive? Let's identify, quantify it, and continuously deliver and scale. So so an example, you think of like Instacart. You know, there is getting groceries in a different manner really a problem. Is grocery gathering really a problem you can argue that it's not but when you think about it in a different way of like what is the consumer value they value convenience they value not having to wait in line and so you think of instacart may not have existed had they thought of it as a problem but now you think about well what's the value and so once you have that value in mind now you can create your your product vision your product strategy you know so so instacart identified here's the value we want to deliver we want more convenient quick groceries now, their vision for their product and their business could have been, let's have, when you pull up to the grocery store, all your stuff's ready to go. But, and then let's build a product. Let's create a roadmap. Let's build something that, that leads us to that, integrations with grocery stores, et cetera. But their vision for the company was, no, we want to create a double-sided marketplace, right? We want to have delivery at your front door without having to do anything. And so that's where, when you think about the foundation of, is there a problem in the market? Let's envision a product that, that solves it, or is there value that the consumer is looking for? And how do we scale that? How do we give that? Uh, that's where then your vision, your strategy, all that stuff comes into place. And that's something that um, time, battle wounds, getting things wrong have, have really taught me. Um, and, and really coming back to, you know, I, I think we, we laugh at that, where my dog's that example, but had we gotten in front of our customers first, we would have realized we're spinning our wheels with all this API integration. And so mm-hmm. really what, you know, the getting in front of your users, user research, I think, is is critical. And everyone says, oh, of course, you know, that's that's huge. How can you not? But then you go into a company and you say, hey, we need a research. And they're like, well, we don't have budget for that. Right. And so there's this this conundrum, this catch 22. But when you when my philosophy on that user research, what really sort of differentiates what makes it important is from that quantitative data, you want to get as much sorry, from that qualitative data of the research. You want to get as much quantitative data as you can, because then you compare people to each other. So, so examples, right? Let's say our product had a 30-day free trial. How would you measure if this was worth paying for on day 31? Uh, let's say you've been using the product. How would you measure what the value is you're determining from your product? What are you hoping this product can help you achieve? If you're using this product six months from now, why is that, right? And so if you can start to get some of that uh, quantitative data, you can start to compare and really then quantify as we talk that value and then be clear in how you want to how you want to build a product that does that. What are the business KPIs? What are the usage KPIs or, that, that come from it? And it just becomes very 
organic growth, organic product development from there. So that's sort of how the philosophy has changed over time. And I can certainly expound upon it, but at the risk of losing my voice, I won't. <laughs> no, I like that. And it's good. To, it's good to know. And that I'm sure helps with like, Hey, here's what, here's what we can charge on a monthly basis for this, for this app, depending on how, you know, how many people get past the free trial and actually sign up and the, the value that they, that they see. I think that that's huge. And I know you mentioned, you know, there's, you know, there's different roadblocks and things like that. Like what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced as a product leader? And like, how did you overcome those? Yeah. You know, I think, Going back to what I just mentioned in terms of of customer first, you know, what I've I found and I, I uh, would be remiss to say I've overcome them all the time, um, you know, is is a big thing of, hey, our business needs 10 million in ARR by booked by the next six months. What is the product we can build that gets us there? And it's such a common yet backwards way of building a product, right? No consumer is using your product because of your business KPIs. Uh, and so I think shifting that mindset, a lot of companies say, oh, we're so product led, but in reality, your, your product sort of is the, is the carriage to the horse. And so it's not always easy to overcome that, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges. How do you, you change that mindset or even what's even more common. And I, I admittedly have fallen prey to it is you set a deadline on what needs to be released before you even define the product. You know, how can you do something like that? And then, and that's when you get frustration over well, why is the product late or why are we behind schedule, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, how, how do we overcome this? There's, there's a, a myriad of ways to go about it. You know, it's, it's certainly about buying up from, you need to make mm -hmm. sure everyone's on the same page. And, and the most powerful word that I can say helps with that is the word why, right? Hey, why do you think the way you do? Why is this the right decision for our product? Why do I think the moment you can sort of, get your rationale on the table, put your cards down, then you can start to really have a, a real discussion where it's not upon opinion or you have data or if it is opinion, you can get there. And I think those strategic resolutions only come when you really have that upfront, um, you know, buy-in and with that upfront collaboration. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes, again, I've made you ask a very personal question, I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a personal answer. Now, I, am among many others, have made is that the engineering team in QA, they're the last step before the product goes live. And too often, they're the last ones informed on what needs to be built before mm -hmm. it gets developed, right? You know, they don't know what we want until a sprint planning meeting. They don't know what's required until they read documentation. And so I think the, the biggest thing is involve engineering upfront. You know, let them know where you're going because the moment they can see what's down the road, you'll avoid tech debt rework you know re anything insert any word at the end of re and it's a problem right so yeah. that is certainly helpful and then and then i think too the last thing is like the outside pressures right financial especially if you're a startup you you can't have an 18 month roadmap with an 8 month runway so really thinking about where are those constraints within the business you can't build a machine learning model without a, a data engineer right and thinking about what are the capabilities what are the constraints and then being realistic and prioritizing around those things. So there's there's a lot of things to overcome. There's a reason that only 10% of you know startups are successful, but I think there there are things that can be solved if you take the right approach. Right, and and I know you know from you personally, like you've been a part of startups, you've been a part of you know some larger larger corporations. Um, like what what do you say, think are like the main differences between or like the challenges and opportunities that come from startups? 
and like and the product side specifically compared to you know say a, like a very large like ten thousand plus person type company or like problems that you know Meta or Netflix face are different than you know your ten person startup. Yeah, I mean, there, I'll start with a a cliche we're all tired of hearing of you're going to wear many different hats, and I'll <laughs> add I'll I'll add to it that those hats don't always fit. Uh, so you'll definitely get exposure to things. Uh, you don't you don't necessarily go in there expecting, and it's a it's a great um, what is it like a fertilizer for imposter syndrome <laughs> sometimes, but but aside from that, I think you know you're going to get a lot more saving decisions and impactful decisions, company wide decisions. You know, I'll, I'll give you an analogy: um, a basketball player has more impact on the team than a baseball player because in basketball there's five people on team, in baseball there is not. So. Um, you're, you're really going to be able to have more ownership over the entire thing than just sort of what's in your, your wheelhouse. And um, we talked before about some of those, that 18-month roadmap, eight-month runway. I think that's going to be something you're, you're really going to be faced with and you're going to learn to work with it. Uh, Facebook, really, you, you mentioned, or sorry, Meta, you know, you mentioned has those, that, that almost seemingly unending faucet uh, but a, a Series A company won't have that. So you really learn to say, well, what are the trade-offs? How do I prioritize within these constraints? Uh, and I think, you know, two more things come to mind. One, I would say is company culture is huge, right? You're, you go to a startup, the mission, what you believe in, the, the top-down culture permeates the organization. These larger companies, the culture is almost good for the, for the website, but who your team is, who you are, is is determined predominantly by your manager, right, and your colleagues. Mm -hmm. It's not really the, the company at that point. So I'd say the last thing, too, is it's a great opportunity to get paid less. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your, your equity will, will be part of your comp, and odds are it won't be worth anything. You know, your, your salary will be less. And so make sure you believe in what you're going into. Make sure you have your eyes wide open. You believe in the product, the mission, the potential, uh, and your role within it, because uh, at the end of the day, you're going to be shocked at your take home more, <laughs> more that way than you might otherwise be. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's a huge thing is just like giving up some money for experience and like learning. And like you said, wearing so many different hats, it's like being able to like, okay, I just, I basically learned in three years, what I probably would have learned in 10 years working at a larger corporation. And I got paid way less for doing that, but I know so much more where hopefully I can leverage that into a next opportunity or starting my own company. And, you know, it's like the startup world isn't for everyone, um, but neither is big corporations. So it's like an, it's like an MBA with less debt. <laughs> Let's put yes. it that way. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully you make positive money uh, <laughs> start up there. So, and, you know, for you, like, you know, you've been part of some pretty successful uh, startups that, you know, have gone on to have exits, not necessarily when you were there, but, you know, for, for instance, you know, you joined a company called Steady as a VP of product at the Series A stage. Um, like how big was that company and, and the team when you joined and what sort of impact did you feel, especially from, you know, the executive level while growing that out? Yeah, when I joined SETI, it was only um, 35 people. They're based in Atlanta, and I was the, we were building a secondary office in L.A., and I was the second L.A. Uh, employee behind the CTL. And uh, when I joined, my team was four people. Uh, eventually, within a few, few months, had to let two go. Um, and eventually, I oversaw product, research, design, uh, and customer support, resulting in a team of about 20. And 
Uh, customer support was intentional. I wanted that uh, under my umbrella because it's really completes that feedback loop. You know, they're mm-hmm. hearing what are the issues or what are people like and, and what's working and not with your product. And you can then roll that back into your product development. So I would say to any product manager who's listening or just anyone generally who's listening, make sure that customer support and your product team are in lockstep because you're going to learn so much more through them uh, and they'll have ideas that you might not have otherwise thought of. You certainly go, you know, check the ego and, and listen to them because they'll have insights that you might not otherwise have. And I think that was, that's important. I guess not related to your question, but, but certainly important. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I so, like that. I, I think so often customer support falls under sales and it's just like, but it's like, Hey, the feedback that your customers are actually giving you are so crucial to the product that you put out, you know, the next update in your product, or if you need to totally like, you know, with, with your dog, you know, with, with the dog park app, it's like, uh, let's make sure like people are using this the way they're supposed to. And if it's not, we need to be able to change this quickly to capitalize on that. It's, it's funny too. You, you think customer support is just people who have complaints or problems and sure for the most part it is, but you'd be surprised how often people write in to say they like something or they're happy with something or, Hey, can you do more of this or more of that? And all of a sudden you have product validation from the other side that if you weren't connected to it, or if the customer support Rapper team wasn't proactive in telling you, you might not otherwise know. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm just, this just kind of came top of head, like with, you know, people, when you have an app on the app store or Google play store, people can leave reviews on the app and like leave feedback. Is that something that, you know, gets pretty actively checked from your experience being like, Hey, this five-star review is like, they love the product, but they wish we could do this or leaned in a little more here. Or um, are those take are those read by anyone? Are they taken into consideration uh, by either product or customer support? So it's a good question, you know, and and it's certainly read. All your reviews, positive or negative, should be responded to in all your app and play stores. It just shows engagement, shows you care. So it's it's a tricky thing with those reviews. Hey, I'd like to add this thing. So you there's there's a difference in approach, right? If you have a SaaS platform, if you're a Salesforce and your client wants this, you build it for that client. But if you're a, a general product and one person's asking for it, it might not make sense to go ahead and build that. So you want to take what they're suggesting, tie it to your in-app data, tie it to your usage. Is this something that might benefit the macro user base? Is it something that's on our roadmap? Is this something we haven't considered? Does it make sense to invest in this? Because that's just one of many data points. So mm-hmm. certainly consider, certainly take it, ingest it, Maybe even reach out to that person as a, as a user research interview, right? And, and dive more into what they want and how are they quantifying their value, et cetera. But I, I would be uh, remiss to tell you, hey, go ahead and whatever good idea you hear on the app store, go ahead and get it in the backlog kind of thing. Right. Yeah. You got to make sure it's vetted and like that you have the bandwidth, especially in a startup, that there's the bandwidth to be able to make something happen or yeah, what the what the path to revenue is is like there. Um, you know, that's if that's the product. And, you know, and then, you know, Tying back to like your time at Steady, you know, starting as, you know, one of the first 35 people and joining at Series A, you're a big part of getting them to, you know, with raising Series B and Series C funding. Um, Can you share anything about that process, like things you learned from that that, you know, probably didn't expect or um, that you could pass on to people that, you know, so many companies or, you know, founders and, and thought leaders are trying always out there fundraising and there's a lot of unknown there. But anything you're able to share that's not totally confidential, like would love to hear it. Totally. It goes back to, we go back to an MBA without an MBA, you know, how much you learn in this process. Uh, 
I'd say a couple things come to mind. I'd say one is uh, I, I'll, I'll caveat with you're going to hear a balance between cynicism and realism, depending on your point of view. But uh, I'd say, you know, a, a yes is not a yes until the ink is dry. You know, there have been so many near misses. There have been so many times where we had the champagne in the room. We're just waiting to pop it and then something falls through. So, you know, you're going to get a lot of interest because you might have a product that garners that interest. But uh, be ready for something to potentially not come through at the end. And, and it's it's humbling. It's frustrating. But it's it's a reality. Uh, I'd say, too, you know, not all money is created equal. Uh, you know, your your lead is certainly someone that you want have a name brand and it brings in uh, confidence in your strategic partners and your followers. But I'd say those strategics many times can be more important than your lead. Uh, you know, you want them to know your industry. You want them to know the idiosyncrasies of your business. You want them to have experience or, or connections or someone with whom you can talk to that they make the introduction. It's, it, you know, investors, board members shouldn't be telling you what to do. They should be there to guide. But if you're just taking a check because it won't bounce, then you might not be getting the most that you can. So I'd say, you know, think about who are your leads in one column, who are your strategics in the other, because you want to make sure you're getting value beyond the check from both. Uh, and that's obviously certainly up to a certain stage. You know, if you're Series B, Series C, you just need the money to scale, to, to maybe, maybe diversify your product library, things like that. But if you're really looking for product market fit, early stages of revenue, things like that, uh, that would be, that would be, you know, something to, to consider. I'd say, um, you know, what's funny too, is be ready to have the same amount of enthusiasm in pitch 100 as you do in pitch one. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, steady CEO had a remarkable ability to do it and I watched it happen and I was dumbfounded. Like, how are you doing this? But you have to remember the first time that investor is seeing your pitch and your product might be the hundredth time you've done it. So you, you need to bring that same enthusiasm and, and, you have to push through, power through, make sure you're learning each time you hear feedback. Again, does this apply to everyone? Is this just one person's point of view? But you get better each time. You can tweak things each time, but just maintain that enthusiasm when it's hard. And uh, Last thing I would say is be wary if an investor says, hey, this isn't a fit for us, but I can introduce you to two other people. Because those two other people are going to get your, your deck in front of them or whatever in front of them. And then the first thing you're thinking is, well, then why did so-and-so pass on it? And why would it be a good fit for me? So those introductions might just be good practice, but I wouldn't bank on those to be the, uh, the next check you get. Right. I think so. And I think, you know, a lot of it does come down to practice. It's, you know, it could take a hundred times to, to get the oh. right, the right fit. And it's like, it's so important. It's like, Hey, this is, it's not something to be taken lightly. You shouldn't just take a check just to get just to get money. And it's someone that is totally unaligned with your values. And you get the you know you get the short end of the stick with the deal sometimes based on how desperate you are for capital. Um, you know, I've, I I feel mean, the same. I think. Go on. Just, just to say, it's a convenience to be able to pick and choose whose money you get. Right. Sometimes sure. you need you need the capital because the lights are about to be shut off. So. I, 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 you know, you bring up a good point. Sometimes you don't have the option, but if you do, certainly, again, not not all money is created equal. Yeah, and yeah, and I think you know, carrying that enthusiasm, like, because it gets daunted. It's just like he's like, man, like I've already pitched this fifty times and no one's interested. But it's like you just need one. You just need one yes at the end of the day. And I know I feel that from the recruiting side. It's it's like, hey, I, I, you know, if I'm pitching a company and I have, a, I have a bunch of calls with candidates, I'm like, man, I've been pitching this company all day. Like, I feel like a robot, but it's like, 
this is the first time that candidate is hearing it. And I need them to hear the enthusiasm in my voice, because if I'm not excited about the role, how the hell am I expecting to get them excited about the role and, and that interested in what, in what I'm talking about. And uh, I think it's, yeah, it goes for so much. It's just like, you never know, you never know who might say yes and who might change your day uh, or your year. Uh, you know, it's, it's, right. it's huge. There. No, it's a good point. I didn't even, I didn't even think of that in terms of your role or, or just how that is a common issue amongst, you know, various industries and things like that. But yeah, you, you, you bring up a very good point. Yeah, no, I, I know from like, you know, my days back in doing stand up comedy, it was always like, you know, you could do a job, you could do a joke here in one room and it crushes and it kills it and it's awesome. And then you go to a totally different room and it's crickets and you're like, I just told the exact same joke. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's, it's who you're talking to is, is, you know, your audience matters. Uh, and you know, I'm sure it's, there's a lot of similarities to, to the VC world and, and startups and getting funding there. Um, and you know, coming outside, coming out of startups, like leaving Steady, like you started your own consulting firm, Jiri, J-I-R-I, uh, earlier this year. Like, what is your philosophy approach to consulting with startups as opposed to coming in as like, a, you know, an executive full-time employee? And, you know, did you always plan to eventually go into business for yourself or was it just sort of an opportunity that you had to seize? Yeah, I mean, with my background, I think the idea of, starting another business was always something on my radar. Um, and just learning what I've learned to me, it was really like, what business can I start where I'm not beholden to outside capital or friends and family or bootstrapping to really give it a chance to scale. Um, and, and this just really checked a lot of boxes. For me, it's important to give back too. Uh, like I'm a mentor and advisor at the UCLA Venture Accelerator, which is uh, unpaid for me. But it's important to to really, you know, let people know, give them a better chance based on the mistakes I've made or what I've learned and works uh, in that capacity. So I think for me, it, it really is the opportunity to do a lot of things that are important to me. Uh, and my approach really goes back to, I think, what, what now is a culmination of our entire discussion, really thinking about how you develop a product and, and what's important, what should be your, your priority, right? Building something customer first building what they they want from your product and understanding that the, the business metrics, the growth, the retention, the engagement, the, the monetization will follow with it. If you do it the other way, you're, you're just, you're not going to be successful. I think so. So I think that's, that's such a common problem. So what's nice though, too, is when I'm working with a company is I'm there for a reason. They are willing to make a, a shift in their approach. They're willing to think about think, think these things through from a different perspective. And it's very collaborative. I'm not there to tell you what to build because this is your product. This is your vision. This is your baby. But let's get the most out of it. Let's make sure you're building the right thing. Uh, so, for example, you know, if, if a company's growth KPI is app downloads, mm -hmm. uh, you, you might think about, okay, well, then... From the product standpoint, we want to increase engagement with our referral feature. But if your goal is to get more app downloads, that shouldn't be a reason you build a referral feature. You know what I mean? There, there's that, right. that disconnect. So you want to make sure, hey, we have a product that lends itself to a referral feature. You think about Venmo, right? I have money that I want to pay you on Venmo. Well, the only way for you to get paid is to download Venmo. That's a very good example of product-led growth. So make sure that if you're thinking about our growth KPI is downloads and we're going to measure it by referrals. It's because your product makes sense to have a referral feature. And that's how you can then start with really being product led. 
yet having your, your business metrics, your growth, your revenue, et cetera, follow behind it. And again, product-led is a good example there. And then as you're growing, getting downloads, product-led growth is a sequential from there. So that's really what I focus on, on creating a product, a long-term vision, a strategy for linear progression uh, and product-led growth, not relying on your marketing budget to, to grow, but relying on your customers and building what it is that they want in order for you to build a product that's right for them. Cool. No, I love that. I think it's a, that's a great example with Venmo. It's just like, it becomes, it's like, yeah. Hey, you need to use this because I need, this is the only way that I can get you something. Um, and yeah. And you know, with the, I guess the, you know, a little off topic from just pure product talk, but Jiri, like, what is the, what is the background around that name? Like, does that stand for something? Is that, uh, you know, something you've used in the past or um, what is it? Yeah. Uh, so it's something I was, I was, you know, spinning my wheels on what should I call this thing, this, that, and the other. And, and my wife actually came up with the name. It's the first two initials of both of my kids. So very close to home, very straightforward, but uh, something that when I hear it or I say it has meaning to me. And, uh, you know, I like to say the first time you heard Google or the first time you heard Nike, you had that same, what does this mean? Uh, and, mm -hmm. and to me, it means something out of the gates. So, yeah. Funny you ask, cool. not many people. <laughs> I always, I'm always interested because it's like there's a name for a reason. I know like I have like a, you know, like with the consulting I do on the side, it's called Sunday Porch Club. And I'm like, that is something I started with my buddies 10 plus years ago. And it's just like, it's like, you know what, that's who I am. It embodies what I what I do. It has nothing to do with recruiting, uh, but I like it, the name. Uh, and you know what, you can name your business whatever the hell you want at some point. So, um, yeah, that's great. And it flows off the tongue, just like Jerry. Uh, it's, it's nice. Um, and you know, as we're kind of coming up on time here, like what, what are you most excited for, you know, from either, you know, for, for yourself or, you know, probably can't talk about specific projects, but, um, you know, where you see stuff going or you see the product, you know, product management world heading in like, you know, good direction, especially with new technologies and AI, like what is, you know, short-term and long-term, like, what are you most excited about for things coming up? Yeah, there's a lot, you know, I think the, the profession of product management has certainly evolved over time. 10 years ago, it, it wasn't even a job or maybe longer, you know, 15, whatever, 20 years ago. It, people had that as a profession, but what it was, you know, has changed so much. So I think the, the saying we're product-led and being product-led has certainly become more of a reality over time. And I think that's going to be huge for, for companies where, it's such a competitive market. You know, AI is a buzzword, but it, what does that really mean at the end of the day and your ability to do it? And you have, you you know, what's cool, what's interesting is you hear about AI companies now that will help you with your, you know, creating a deck or help you with your writing an essay or whatever those very specific use cases might be. But the the job of an AI engineer, of a data engineer who's doing that now is going to be so different. It's going to be a product manager 20 years ago. It's going to be so different than what it is 10 years down the road. And it's exciting to be at the forefront of some of these things. You know, I'm I'm of the generation where I grew up to to say I, I was a, you know, I was a teenager before the internet really was sort of invented. And so I've been on both sides of that. I was in college when Facebook came out. Uh, you know, and to be at these inflection points uh, is is very exciting to just see where it goes. So you ask about machine learning at steady we implemented it for for jobs and skills and upskilling things like that and 
I'm very, very curious to see how the the advancement of AI is used in these very nuanced use cases, certainly healthcare, certainly healthcare, as we start to really need to get over some of the, the hurdles that we've seen, uh, certainly clean technology. Obviously, these are two, two industries uh, I mentioned at the beginning, but two industries where we really need to get ahead of the curve, because if it's just a very one-to-one -one growth, we're, we're behind eight ball. So those, those are our two cases where I'm excited that the, the smartest brains are, are going in that direction. Um, but also excited to see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's a great comparison. It's just like all these different inflection points throughout society. It's like, you know, in 10 years from now, AI is going to be like, yeah, of course AI like exists. And now it's this, you know, it's this hot topic. Or I remember people were like, is mobile going to catch on? Uh, you know, 10 years, it's like, yeah, it caught on. It's, it is, everything is mobile now. Um, so oh, I, I hear AI, I still think Alan Iverson, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's a whole right? Yeah, he's the answer, um, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, what's funny is like, there we, we talk about the specifics and, and I keep saying I'm so old. I guess I'm not that old. I just, <laughs> it's fun to, again, be through those inflection points. Uh, but, but, you know, I'd say in closing, one big thing, and, and we talk about the specifics of AI, is you can't build a product that's good enough for everyone. You need to build a product that's irreplaceable for a very specific but scalable group of people. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned because you go out and you say, well, hey, this is a, a $10 billion industry. And if we could just capture 2% of that, we'll be a unicorn. But in reality, you know, if not everyone wants that product. You think about Uber, they started with, with high-end uh, right, you know, car taxi services, and now look who they are. But they they couldn't have done that to begin with. So that's just one thing I wanted to make sure I snuck in there before before the end. Just make sure you're thinking in that way. Long term, it it'll pay off. Short term, you might say, hey, well, look, I need I need more now. But if you don't take that approach, you'll have less later. Right. No, I like that approach for sure. Um, and Kabir, where can people get in touch with you? Where can people find you? Um, reach out are you open to to people hitting you up on linkedin or yeah totally linkedin is probably one of the easiest ways uh jury consulting as you said jri consulting uh dot com is another way but those are the the two easiest ways i'd say by far uh, and I'm, I'm responsive at both so. perfect um well yeah kabir again i very much appreciate you know sharing your insight into product into startups into fundraising very all-encompassing conversation and you know, hopefully things are just keep going well with with the consulting side of things and um you know keeping skills sharp and you know two two kids at home to keep feet keep feeding so um, i appreciate you jumping <laughs> sure. on and hope everyone has enjoyed the episode